Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Nixon's America Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, The Election of 1972. This contest pitted Richard Nixon versus George McGovern. Though at first, instead of attempting a third-party challenge again, George Wallace actually began to run within the Democratic Party for the nomination. As a hardcore segregationist, he got more votes than any other candidate, and he was successful not just in the South but in the North as he won the Florida and Michigan primary. Things looked like he might be the candidate until he was shot and crippled by an assassin. In his place emerged George McGovern from South Dakota. He was a passionate anti-war candidate and won the nomination after he called for a $30 billion defense cut, a higher tax on the 1%, amnesty for draft dodgers, and decriminalization of weed. Due to these positions, his opponents dubbed McGovern the candidate of, quote, acid, amnesty, and abortion. As I mentioned earlier, Democrats thought the 26th Amendment, which lowered the voting age, would help them. But as a result, the Democratic Convention was more youthful and diverse in 1972, which led the perception that the Democratic Party had been taken over by black militants, hippies, and feminists. In response, the AFL-CIO, the nation's largest union, refused to endorse the McGovern ticket, the first time this union had not supported a Democrat since the signing of the Wagner Act in the 1930s. Combined, this further convinces conservative working people that the Democrats are no longer the party of FDR and JFK. The election map tells the results. Nixon whooped McGovern's butt. McGovern only won Massachusetts and D.C., and he got a smaller popular vote percentage than Alf Landon in 1936. The election of 1972 confirmed the New Deal coalition was in shambles. The majority of Catholics, union members, and white Southern segregationists all vote for Nixon. Nixon manages to put the tricky in tricky dick and get all of the old elements of the New Deal coalition, except for African Americans, Jews, and the very poor. What is more, urban cities like Detroit and Macomb County which would once been a bastion of the Democrats, went two to one for Nixon, and this is representative of the massive change. Nixon himself looked forward to a positive second term. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Peace in Vietnam. I already covered this in the Vietnam lecture, but I just want to show you the chronology. Since after Nixon's victory, he sent Kissinger on secret negotiations in Paris. After the talks bogged down, Nixon launched Operation Linebacker II in December of 1972, which was the heavy bombing of North Vietnam. Essentially, as one veteran said, we were bombing them to accept our surrender. In the end, the Paris Peace Accords were signed on January 27, 1973, which is the formal peace treaty that ended the Vietnam War. With his electoral victory, and with his fulfillment of Peace with Honor pledge, it looked like Nixon would have a comfortable second term. But soon, the country would learn the ugly side of his administration. 
please turn to the next slide entitled, All the President's Men. We will now devote ourselves to a lengthy explanation of the Watergate scandal from 1972 to 1974. And Watergate is where all scandals now get the gate in their name, like Inflategate, Spygate, and the like. This is the story of how a third-rate burglary spiraled out of control into a massive intra-governmental cover-up. At a time of anxiety about the nation's future, Vietnam and the energy crisis accelerated Americans' dischantment with the United States' role in the world and the efficacy of their leaders. In addition, though they were small, the escalating revolutionary rhetoric of the Black Panthers and the actions of student protesters were perceived as a growing threat, not just to Nixon, but the entire country. Well, at least that's what he thought. As a result, Nixon is worried and wants to control this, and his paranoia fueled the growing repression against dissenting groups of all varieties. For instance, Nixon expanded the counterintelligence program, Quintel Pro. This sponsored covert infiltration of suspected domestic enemies, which ranged from anti-war protesters, radical student groups, and the civil rights movement, which included triggering feuds between various groups, inciting groups to violence, and then alerting the police. One example occurred in Greenboro, North Carolina, where the FBI incited black militants to firebomb stores and then made sure that the police and media were there to get them on film in order to discredit the movement. Nixon went so far as to draw up an enemies list in 1971, and he instructed federal agencies to make life very difficult for the people on that list. For example, he pushed for multiple investigations on fraudulent charges, as well as IRS audits and other immoral means. So you may ask, who was on this list? The president of Harvard and Yale University, along with Jane Fonda, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, and Barbara Streisand. This shows us that Nixon was deeply paranoid, though Fonda had made public statements in favor of the NLF. In some minor ways, this paranoia is understandable, since Nixon had just barely lost the 1960 election and believed it was because of fraud in Chicago and Texas, though there was no evidence of it. Nixon's paranoia increased when the New York Times and the Washington Post attempted to publish the Pentagon Papers. This was a confidential and damning history of the United States' involvement in Vietnam, commissioned by the Defense Department and later leaked by Daniel Ellsberg, who had worked with the papers and realized the horror inside. The papers showed how presidents from Truman to Johnson had repeatedly deceived the public on the Vietnam War's scope and direction. In 1971, the Nixon administration tried unsuccessfully to sue the paper to prevent their publication. Instead, the courts upheld the newspaper's right, and the Pentagon Papers became widely read and increased dissatisfaction. Incensed, Nixon saw conspiracies against him everywhere and did not want to lose the 1972 election. So he will greenlight a covert operation to discredit his opponents in the coming election. The men who lead this are the White House plumbers, former CIA and FBI agents, 
and these men were authorized to bug, break, and enter, and spy on Nixon's enemies. Famously, the plumbers broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to discredit the man. After some bungling, the plumbers stopped, but all of this will lead to the Watergate break-in, and you can see that the campaign had already been engaged in some very shady business. Please advance to the next slide. At the insistence of the president, Bob Haldeman, the president's aide, went to White House counsel John Dean in order to set up a legitimate intelligence operation. This would be run out of the Committee to Re-Elect the President, called CREEP. John Dean then went to Jack Caulfield, a New York police officer, to begin a normal infiltration operation, and this entailed basically buying information from secretaries, tracking down gossip, and the like. This is pretty pervasive in politics, so it's nothing new. But John Ehrlichman, special assistant to the president, and John N. Mitchell, the former attorney general, rejected this measure as too little. So they then turned to G. Gordon Liddy, who was the head of Creep. Before Creep, Liddy had been in the FBI and was one of the White House plumbers, and they were called that, by the way, because they were there to fix leaks. This is when a simple intelligence operation becomes even more insidious because Liddy then comes up with a million-dollar plan to undermine the Democratic Party campaign. Liddy met with John Dean and Mitchell and proposed Operation Gemstone in January 1972, and it was the single most incredible thing John Dean had seen. It involved black bag operations, kidnapping, using prostitutes to try and place Democrats in compromising positions, buggings, muggings, and even the sabotaging of the air conditioning system at the Democratic National Committee in Miami. Liddy also wanted to infiltrate protesters there and have agents of creep and the FBI scream, peace, pot, and promiscuity. It was truly an astonishing and immoral plot to influence an American election. But this went too far, so the plan was rejected in favor of Watergate. Early on the morning of June 17, 1972, police arrested five men who had broken into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. They were caught by a few plain-closed officers. At first, no one really seemed to care. They thought that this was just another robbery, until some reporters, like Bob Woodward, noticed something funny. Woodward broke the story because he realized that all the burglars were wearing suits. They had sophisticated surveillance equipment. They carried thousands of dollars in cash, and some were Cubans affiliated with the Bay of Pigs. But all had ties to the CIA and FBI. One of those arrested was a former CIA employee, then working as a security aide for Nixon's administration's Committee to Re-Elect the President. Slowly, two different sets of scandals emerged from the investigations. One was a general pattern of abuses of power involving both the White House and the Nixon Campaign Committee, which included, but was not limited to, the Watergate break-in. The other scandal, and the one that became the major focus of public attention for nearly two years, was the way in which the administration tried to manage the investigations of the Watergate break-in, as well as other abuses. 
a pattern of behavior that became known as the cover-up. There was never any conclusive evidence that the president had planned or proved the burglary in advance, but there was plenty of mounting evidence that he had been involved in illegal efforts to obstruct investigations of the episode. Nixon personally instructed John Ehrlichman to instruct the CIA to thwart the FBI's investigation, and in an effort to cover up the robbery, Mitchell approved hush money to the robbers and their families. After extensive study, investigators found that this hush money came from creep funds, pointing to an attempt from someone higher up to obstruct the investigation. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post learned from an informant, then called Deep Throat, to keep following the money, as it would bring them to something larger. By the way, we now know that Deep Throat was actually the associate director of the FBI, Mark Felt. On October 10, 1972, FBI agents established that the Watergate break-in stemmed from a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage conducted on behalf of the Nixon re-election effort. So in the midst of all of this, Nixon wins re-election in 1972, in the middle of the scandal, since again, no one seemed to care about the political chicanery. Please advance to the next slide. On January 30th, 1973, former Nixon aides G. Gordon Liddy and James W. McCord Jr. were convicted of conspiracy, burglary, and wiretapping in the Watergate incident. Five other men pleaded guilty, but mysteries remained. It looked like the case would be closed until March 15th, when McCord wrote a letter to the judge. In his letter, he claimed that the defendants had committed perjury and had been subjected to political pressure to be quiet. The White House counsel, John Dean, who had been trying to keep the Watergate from spinning out of control, grew uneasy. So on March 21, 1973, he went to see Nixon, and there's a recording that you can listen to of this conversation. Dean tells Nixon that there was a cancer on the presidency, that it was spreading, and he was worried that people who had perjured themselves were going to flip and turn state's evidence. As it became clear that the bribery effort was failing, Dean recognized his own legal peril. So when he was subpoenaed on April 6, he began cooperating with federal Watergate prosecutors. On April 30th, Nixon's top White House staffers, H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Attorney General Richard Kleindest resigned over the scandal, and the White House counsel, John Dean, was fired. Nixon himself profused innocence, but people were growing increasingly suspicious. On May 18, 1973, the Senate Watergate Committee hearings were nationally televised. There, Attorney General Elliot Richardson taps the former Solicitor General, Archibald Cox, as the Justice Department's special prosecutor for Watergate. Nixon was pleased, since he thought Cox was on his side. In fact, Cox had an independent streak. During the Senate hearings, Dean told Watergate investigators that he discussed the Watergate cover-up with Nixon at least 35 times, and he gave a detailed account because Dean's mind has the ability of total recall, where he can remember events vividly. Days later, a memo from Ehrlichman 
proved that he had had the White House plumbers break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. During the investigation, a couple of prosecutors noticed that Republicans in the hearings were asking pretty specific questions related to Dean's testimony, like eerily accurate. How did they know these minor quibbles of his testimony? Well, that's when another bombshell hit. Alexander Butterfield, a former presidential appointment secretary, revealed in congressional testimony that since 1971, Nixon had recorded all conversations and telephone calls in his offices. This is how some of those Republicans during the hearings knew about Dean's comments. So, the investigators immediately requested Nixon to send the tapes. In response, Nixon refuses to hand over the recordings to the Senate Watergate Committee. On October 19, 1973, he offered a compromise and proposed that U.S. Senator John C. Stennis review and summarize the tapes for accuracy and report his findings to the Special Prosecutor's Office. The major problem with this compromise is that Stennis is nearly deaf, and everyone knows it, so it's a joke. This compromise was rejected by the Special Prosecutor, and when Cox issued a federal subpoena for them, Nixon declared that he would not comply, and then did the unthinkable. On October 20th, 1973, the Saturday Night Massacre occurred, where Nixon fired Archibald Cox and abolishes the office of the Special Prosecutor. Attorney General Richardson and Deputy Attorney General William D. Ruckelhaus resigned, making Robert Bork the new Attorney General. As a result of this obstruction of justice, pressure from Congress grows to impeach the president. Nixon continues to declare his innocence, saying, I am not a crook. And you can go and listen to his speech on the PowerPoint. Slowly, some tapes were released, and many confirmed what Dean and others had said. But importantly, one of the tapes had 18 minutes of missing recording, and this raised serious concerns about the president deleting information. Nixon would not release all of the tapes, and instead released 1,200 pages of edited transcripts. The problem is that these transcripts are obviously false, contradicting some of the tapes that are already out. So as you can see, transcripts are not always accurate. On July 24th, the Supreme Court compelled Nixon to relinquish all of the tapes, rejecting his claims of executive privilege. Upon receiving the tapes, prosecutors heard clear and incontrovertible evidence of Nixon's involvement in the Watergate cover-up. Nixon was on record telling John Dean that he could get a million dollars to bribe the Watergate robbers into not talking, thus committing obstruction of justice. They also heard that only three days after the burglary, the president had ordered the FBI to stop the investigation. Impeachment and conviction now seemed inevitable. For several days, Nixon cloistered himself in the White House, and people were afraid that he might start a war while drunk in order to take people's attention off of the scandal. At the behest of friends, allies, and many Republican politicians, on August 8, 1974, he announced his resignation, the first president in American history ever to do so. At noon the next day, while Nixon and his family flew west to their home in California, Gerald Ford 
took the oath of office as president. Wait, Gerald Ford? What happened to Spiro Agnew? We'll get to that in a minute. The effects of the Watergate scandal cannot be understated. In a society which already distrusted its leaders and institutions of authority, the fall of Richard Nixon confirmed for many Americans their most cynical assumptions about the character of American public life. And many Americans wondered if their faith in the presidency and the government as a whole could ever be restored. As we will see, the administrations of two presidents who succeeded Nixon did little to answer those questions. We need to make these points abundantly clear. This was a constitutional crisis. The President of the United States had authorized political sabotage and then attempted to cover up his actions. But it was not inevitable that justice prevailed. If reporters had ignored the story, the investigations would have never taken off. If McCord had not flipped, there never would have been any Senate committee hearings. Had Nixon's new Attorney General been corrupt, he could have likely tried to kill the investigation. Had the Attorney General not appointed Cox as a special prosecutor, the investigation may not have been thorough. If Republican senators and congressmen had not been principled and ignored the crimes and risked the constitutional peril, Nixon would have gotten away with it. If the Supreme Court had not checked Nixon's abuse of power, he'd have remained in office and political corruption would have been more accessible. Watergate is not about a robbery. It was part of a coordinated political sabotage, planned by political associates, and then attempted to be covered up with obstruction of justice and abuse of power. So you may ask, how do we prevent constitutional crisis like this? The public must care. Reporters must be honest and dig deep. Politicians must be principled. And the Supreme Court must be a neutral check on the abuse of power. I hope these things will remain. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Bagman. As I alluded to earlier, what happened with Nixon's first vice president, Spiro Agnew? Well, he too was under investigation, beginning in 1972 through 1973. Earlier in his life, Agnew had been elected to Baltimore County's executive, which was involved in Maryland's infamous kickback corruption ring, where Agnew got cash bribes from businessmen in exchange for juicy municipal contracts. When Agnew was elected governor of Maryland in 1966, he turned his racket statewide and began awarding state contracts to businessmen who paid cash bribes. When Agnew was elected to vice president in 1968, he moved this ring into the White House. While in the hollowed office of the vice president, Agnew took bribes, literally envelopes filled with tens of thousands of dollars in exchange for steering federal contracts to key businessmen. Now this whole thing is not related to Watergate or Nixon. Nixon actually thought Agnew was clean, because Agnew's whole purpose was to help with a Southern strategy and be Nixon's attack dog, since Agnew loved blasting liberals, the media, and minorities. And in response, the Republican base loved it. Finally, someone who's not politically correct. Well, how does all of this get discovered? A small team of federal prosecutors in Baltimore were trying to tie corruption to the Democratic leader of the Baltimore County Executive. And though they do find it, they also see that this scheme or ring 
had went back to Agnew's time, so they follow the money, which lead them to Agnew's activities. In response, the Department of Justice, or DOJ, made the inquiry public, and Agnew goes on the offensive, claiming the DOJ is biased, that this is a witch hunt, even though the Attorney General and his prosecutors are Republicans, but they still insist that they are the corrupt ones, not Agnew. Undeterred, the DOJ pursued the case, and they wanted to take down Agnew before this extremely corrupt man took over the presidency from Nixon, who himself increasingly looked like he would fall. While Agnew had claimed that he would not resign even if indicted, the DOJ had a damning case against him, and so finally Agnew relented and resigned the vice presidency, as long as he did not have to do any jail time, though he would forfeit some assets. This is an interesting story of a sitting politician involved in corruption who attacked the Department of Justice as biased and corrupt, who claimed the media was out to get him, and professed his innocence regardless of the mounting evidence against him, and finally, who is backed by a base that does not care about the validity of corruption that he is involved in. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Nixon's Legacy. Nixon's legacy is complex. He represents a transitional figure in a way, a New Deal conservative like Eisenhower who moved politics, but not governance, to the right. Nixon was okay with fighting the Great Society, but not the New Deal. In fact, he tried to live up to the New Deal with the agencies he created, like the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And as I mentioned before, Nixon even proposed a health care plan with an employer mandate and public option, which is very similar to Obamacare. In addition, affirmative action expanded under Nixon. So Nixon clearly is not in line with modern conservatism that emerges under Ronald Reagan. Another legacy is that Nixon had an enormously successful foreign policy that ended the Vietnam War, normalized relations with China, and brought detente and peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. But Nixon's real legacy lies in the constitutional crisis he provoked, and the corresponding lack of confidence in American politics and government. Nixon's legacy for us is that democracy is fragile, and the need for the public institutions to monitor corruptions at all levels of governments. His legacy is the need for an independent press, principled legislatures, and neutral Supreme Courts to check the abuse of power of the corrupt. His legacy is the deep distrust towards politicians and government embodied in the modern American electorate. Combined, Vietnam and Watergate destroyed the public's confidence in their politicians, and for the first time, people did not trust what the government said, which had been unthinkable in the 1950s. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you're staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.